Hello, everyone. Welcome to Shaka Presents Movie Night. I'm your host. My name is Rudy Obias, and joining me is a writer for nextmovie.com, blackfilm.com, uh, Max Avery. Thank you so much for joining me here on Movie Night. Pleasure to be here. Well, good to be back. I, uh, yeah, I had a really good time uh, last time talking about, uh, uh, I think it was the essential anime movies. Yes. And uh, this time, uh, I actually have another article that just came online uh, for next movie called the, the, the 25 Most Essential Movies of the 90s. And uh, it's, it's, it's not my favorite movies of the 90s. It's just like what are like the ones you would put in a time capsule like Pulp Fiction, Shawshank Redemption, Forrest Gump, that kind of stuff. <laughs> movies that were nominated for Best Picture in 1994. <laughs> exactly, yes. But if it, if it was like Max Avery's essential movies of the 90s it would be like on that list would be metropolitan barcelona last days of disco yes uh, a big reason why i invited max here to uh to the show is that we're going to be discussing uh Whit stillman's new film his first film in 13 14 years damsels in distress which comes out in limited release uh this friday uh, i believe in new york and la but we're also going to talk about the films of uh Whit stillman this filmmaker from from the 90s um who kind of makes these really poignant well uh very erudite uh, uh movies about high society in new york and just kind of his his view of like manners and, and the social upbringing of, of most people. So I guess let's start off with um, damsels in distress. Max, what are your thoughts on Whit Stillman's uh, 2010 film damsels in distress? Do you feel that it was worth waiting 13, 14 years between movies for this one? Well, it, it's kind of, it's kind of amazing because uh, I guess we, we sat down to watch this movie about a month ago and it it really it was literally like oh it was like he never left it's like same voice the same uh like you said kind of uh uh erudite you know waspy dialogue and uh you know it was and it was perfect it was it was like having an old friend uh come back for a reunion and uh yeah i don't know um do you want me to uh, quickly do like a kind of a summary of the film uh, yeah, well, let, let me read the, the, the summary from imdb.com. A trio of girls set out to change the male-dominated environment of the Seven Oaks College campus and to rescue their fellow students from depression, uh, grudges, and low standard uh, low standards of every kind. Um, so, and this really, this setting this movie in a college campus is, is kind of perfect for what Will Stillman does in practically all of his movies, Metropolitan, Barcelona, and um, Last Days of Disco. He sets them in, in these really insular places that aren't, are kind of like bubbles to the outside world. Like these little worlds have their own set of rules and, and their, their own, own social hierarchies and don't really necessarily contribute to like how normal f people feel about um the world and, and these topics like stuff that's like usually would be mundane or or not so important are very important in Whit Stillman's worlds yeah the focus is a lot on minutia and uh, um it's they're, they're kind of comedies of manners uh there's uh, i mean the, the previous focuses have been like in Met in metropolitan it was about these kind of debutante cotillions 
And in the last days of disco, it was sort of these upper echelon uh, kind of people trying to get into these exclusive clubs. Um, but yeah, it's it's this this one uh, is it, it fits into that dynamic so well because it's it's it is like his universe. Like Whit Stillman has a voice, and like everybody in the movie talks the way his characters talk, like even like whether they're like a college professor or a waitress or a road worker, like everybody speaks in Stillman speak. Yeah. A, a security guard uh, is, is very well spoken. And I think uh, damsels in distress, I think is the perfect example of what you would usually get in uh, a Whit Stillman world. Uh, his, his first two films, Barcelona and Metropolitan, those worlds still kind of feel like the real world. So if you're not prepared for what he's going to give you, you might not like those films per se. But I think Last Days of Disco and Damsels in Distress kind of give um, his world definitely this flavor and this distinction that you, you cannot help but think that this is a, a fictional world and not necessarily the real world. Yeah, it's, it's hyper-stylized. It's, it, the, the dialogue is so arch um and uh, but but the interesting thing that he kind of adds to this one is uh, a lot of the kind of the joke is that a lot of their anachronistic personalities are actually affected like the character of rose doesn't really come from england she just chooses to speak with an english accent and like violet's fastidious nature is really an OCD like mental illness, which yes. is pretty hilarious. <laughs> um, and yeah, the, the comedy that comes from what Stillman is not necessarily broad, but it's just like little, um, little bits of dialogue, little character moments, but enough of those make his films absolutely hilarious. I would, I would actually put them pound for pound for like any um, Judd Apatow film or any, any comedy in general, I, I think what he does is just so special that we really definitely don't get his type of movie. Um, maybe a Woody Allen or even – I feel what he does is so much better than something like Wes Anderson or Noah Baumbach do. And I, right. I, I have a feeling because he hasn't come out with a movie in 13, 14 years that so many people when they go would watch Damsels in Distress would think that – he himself is ripping off Wes Anderson or ripping off um, Noah Baumbach when, in fact, this is something that he's been doing since 1990. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think uh, we, at the time that he broke out, a lot of people thought that he was going to be like the Wasp Woody Allen. Like, he, yes. like his movies centered around these kind of high society people who speak in these very highfalutin um, discourses. and But it's... He's different, and like he, he, his, his, his stuff is more um, in in this very unique voice that is totally original, um, and yet has even in his absence permeated cinematic culture. Like you, you mentioned Noah Baumbach and Wes Anderson. I think those th their movies uh, are directly traceable to the style of Whit Stillman, and now we have uh, Lena Dunham. Yes. Uh, of tiny furniture and the new show girls who's also like a has has been quoted as saying yeah Whit Stillman is a huge influence on me I think she even cast uh Chris Eigeman in her show oh uh, I actually kind of look forward to that now that you I didn't know Chris Eigeman was on uh 
her HBO TV series Girls, I am ten times more excited to see it than yes, previous. yes. She's wearing wearing her influences on her sleeve. Um, and uh, what I feel like I feel like what Stillman's going to have like this new surge in this decade, uh, especially the pairing that he has now with. Uh, Greta Gerwig, and I, I hope that they work together uh, going forward because she is absolutely perfect for Whit Stillman's um, Whit Stillman's dialogue and Whit Stillman films in general. Uh, I, yeah, ho- ho- holy crap! Like, yeah, Gre- Greta Gerwig was clearly built in a manufacturing plant specifically <laughs> with a switch for Whit Stillman mode. Like, she's just pitch perfect. Like, there, there really is. There, there's such an art to delivering this dialogue. It's almost like Shakespeare. Like it's so tongue twisty and you have to do it with just the right amount of archness and sincerity, which she nails it, like nails it. Yeah. I think her and uh, Chris Eigeman, who who was in the first three Whit Stillman films uh, and and Taylor Nichols. As as the the token sour guy. (laughs) Yes. And also uh, Taylor Nichols, I believe his name is. He's also perfect for Whit Stillman's dialogue. Um, But I I feel there hasn't been that female side. I mean, I don't think Chloe Sevigny or Kate Beckinsale, who were in Last Days of Disco, had that thing to them like Greta Gerwig does, Uh, especially Kate uh, Beckinsale, who I feel is playing that same kind of role that Greta Gerwig is playing in Damsels in Distress. Yeah, I mean, like they 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 gave the old college try in that movie. I mean, they they definitely like they worked, but it wasn't as just completely natural. And I think, I mean, I loved Greta Gerwig in Greenberg, mm-hmm. no Bumbox movie, but uh, this just made it more apparent that she really is capable not only of like a really grounded performance like she has in Greenberg or in all the um, what, what do you call it? Uh, it's <laughs> the, uh, the, the mumblecore movies, but uh, but but she's also capable of doing a really heightened performance, like she has here. Yeah, and she's going to be actually um, in the new Woody Allen film, which I feel is completely. I haven't seen it, obviously, but I, I feel that's kind of a perfect match as well. Yeah, it's like her and Jesse Eisenberg, which is like, well, it's almost like Overload. <laughs> it's it's like all she needs to do is work with Wes Anderson, and then she'll have all those kind of like uh, stodgy New York type of uh, filmmakers <laughs> under her belt that she's worked with. And I have a feeling that's what she's going for. Having the trifecta. Worked, yeah, having worked with uh, Woody Allen, with Stillman, and Noah Baumbach already. Right. Um, there I, – I, I'm going to be honest with Damsels in, in Distress, though. I, I have a feeling if you're not familiar with what Stillman's work, you're going to be very let down by this film. That the, uh, I don't think this film can stand alone to anyone who has never seen a Whit Stillman film, um, which is kind, I feel is a criticism of the movie that you have to kind of be initiated to know what you're going to get because this movie doesn't play out like a typical movie. The things that you would typically find in a movie like this, you're not going to find. Um, and I think the only thing that you would take away from it is the performance of Greta Gerwig. But I feel if you love um, Whit Stillman's work, you'll also love this movie as well. I, w- I would probably agree um, to a point. I think uh, I think you're absolutely right when you say that people are might mistakenly come into this film and say, oh, he's just ripping off, you know, Wes Anderson or whatever. But, like, uh, I think... My first impression was this is definitely the goofiest of his movies, yes. the most kind of divorced from reality. It's almost it's kind of like 
the tone of the dancing subway scene at the end of Last Days of Disco played out over a whole film. Yeah. Uh, like, the characters are more broad and cartoony than in Metropolitan or Barcelona, uh, while it's still adhering to that trademark waspy dialogue. Um, but, uh, but I don't know. Like, I mean... My first experience with Stillman's movies was I was I was very young, uh, and I, I saw Barcelona. They used to show it a lot on cable, and I mean, part of what I what drew me to his work is that it's so like this other surreal universe. It, I mean, like to me, like being like a kid from the suburbs, you know strictly like middle-class Jewish background, <laughs> like watching these movies about debutantes. Uh, and uh, it was, it was just, it was like science fiction. It really was. I, I can't describe it any other way. And, and, and I became obsessed with it. Like, I think I saw Barcelona and Metropolitan probably like, I don't know, 20 times. Like they're, they're just these. And I, and I think it's, I think it's, and this is really embarrassing, but like, it took me like several viewings of Metropolitan to realize they, those characters were still in high school. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like they're they're just so like on this other uh, plane, and and it it's it, but it's that is the beauty and the charm of it, and I don't think that that is going to be lost on newbie viewers. I think I think I would encourage people to go see this movie, whether you've seen his other ones are not just because it's so charming and it's so um, kind of, it, it feels almost innocent. It's like a movie from like the, the, the thirties or the forties, like a, like a Preston Sturgis movie or something like that. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up Preston Sturgis and I, I do agree with you. I mean, uh, for as, I guess, as vicious, I guess, as Violet played by Greta Gerwig is in this movie, which I don't, I, I, I use that term vicious kind of tongue in cheek. Uh, there's definitely a sincerity to her and this um, and this honesty, uh, and I know those two words mean the same thing, uh, and to the fact that she wants to start an international dance craze. You know, that's kind of one of the things, uh, quirks in this movie. And the Sambola. The Sambola, and the fact that she wants to start this and she has this feeling like it is going to catch on. Uh, I don't know if this dance is, I doubt this dance is actually going to catch on, but just having that little bit that she believes this firmly. Um, yeah, I, I think this is also the first major motion picture since fight club to have a whole subplot built around soap. <laughs> yes. Uh, except soap uh, is actually used for, for cleaning and smelling uh, <laughs> in this as opposed to fight club. But all, all the characters in, in um, Damsels in Distress kind of have that to them. E even if they, they are frauds or liars, they admit to it really quickly once they get found out, you know, and then they were like, yeah, that, and they own it, you know, like, yeah, I was a liar. I, I did do that. Yeah, I, I, this is how I, I, I was, and I, I, you just kind of have to accept me for me type of thing. And I, I really like that about what Stillman's films. I mean, everything. Uh, he delivers these characters kind of on a surface level, but then as the movie progresses, you see a little bit more to them, albeit sometimes there's not that much more to them. But I, I like how he re he reveals these characters to be uh, uh, coming from a different direction than when you um, thought about them before. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, for sure. And it's uh, 
Uh, and yeah, and the, the things that you would think would play out uh, over the course of a film can like just kind of quickly turn. Like I think it, like especially kind of romantic alignments. Like the char- characters tend to bounce around from like one romantic interest to another. Um, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of uh, Adam Brody's character. Like it's at one point he's interested uh, in, in one character and then another one. And then, and then they're interested in this one and then back again. It's like it's this little kind of dance that they do. Um, I, th- I thought Annalie Tipton's character is kind of the least flashy role. She's sort of the every girl, the straight man to Gerwig, who she's like kind of the audience surrogate who's like, you bitches be crazy, but I want (laughs) to chill with you, see what kind of shit you're going to do. Well, well, she's like that because she's, she's new to this world and and wants to kind of gain acceptance in a way, or at least not feel left out, I guess. And every, practically every Whit Stillman film has that audience surrogate, uh, either if it's Tom Thompson in uh, in Metropolitan or absolutely uh, yeah yeah or um, Chloe Sevigny's character in and uh, Last Days of Disco, they're they're the ones like looking around like this is the strangest thing imaginable you know, <laughs> but to the people around them this is this is every day this is uh, this is how we talk this is how we act and this is completely normal. Um, yeah, but one one thing we do get in this film that is very atypical from his other ones is we actually. Uh, I, I think I think this is the first time we've seen anything other than the whitest of the white Caucasians in the Stillman movie. Um, you've got uh, the character of Rose, who is played by I'm going to butcher her name. Apologies in advance. Uh, Megalyn Echikunwoki. Is that how you say it? It's better than how I would have said it. So. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but she's uh, a black girl, and she's uh, she's the one with the English accent, and she's terrific. And, like, her race is never an issue, but it's just cool to see him mixing it up, like, yeah. without, a, with, you know, getting away from just, like, the pure Lily White master race of his previous movies. Well, even, not just her, but there's also Jimbo, you know, yeah. who's a side character who's, actually, I, I, I've, since I, I saw it with you, I saw, I've seen this movie twice already, and um, Jimbo's role in this movie is actually, uh, there's a lot to stand out, in, not, not because he's one of the few black people in this movie, but he's actually pretty funny, you know, and um, yeah. Aubrey Plaza is, is in this movie and we de- definitely don't get the same type of Aubrey Plaza that we, we typically get in uh, what we would think in her, uh, movies that she'd be in. And I feel Adrian Brody in this movie is doing his best, his best, Adam Brody. Uh, a- excuse me, uh, Adam Brody, not Adrian Brody. Adam <laughs> Brody in this movie is doing his best uh, Chris Eigman impression. Yeah. Yeah, if it was Adrian Brody, I'd be like, wow, Jews too? What are you doing? <laughs> like this is way out of what's still yeah. with uh, Wheelhouse. But that, I think that's probably a, a thing why people don't latch on to Witt Stillman so much is because this perception of his movies being overly waspy, that you have to be uh, white Anglo-Saxon uh, Protestant to appreciate these films or in fact um, – I actually question people's taste in movies if they're not fans of Whit Stillman. For me, Whit Stillman mm-hmm. is that is kind of that glue of cinema, in my opinion. Like, well, I don't get why you don't like this. Is actually this is the stuff why people make movies. This is why people write. You know, you you say you like um, Woody Allen and, and Wes Anderson, but you don't like this. This is practically the same thing. I just don't understand that. And I feel it's because of that the whiteness to it. I feel is people get would get turned off by it just on that surface level. 
Yeah, yeah, and maybe these castings were a direct response to that kind of hesitance on people. But I mean, like you or I don't come from that background. Oh, no, we still love these movies. I mean, um, but uh, you know, I but I think that you know they're wonderful, and uh, um, I was actually t- trying to think of the whole kind of. Uh, Oeuvre, you know, as it were, like, like how, like, where does damsels fit in? And I think when when you look at all four movies, there really there is kind of an, an order to them. Like, Metropolitan is high school, damsels is college, Last Days is kind of post college, and then Barcelona is kind of into adulthood, work, and marriage. They do they do kind of tell a linear story. Yeah, well, where in fact how Barcelona ends is, you know the. The, I believe just the one guy got, gets married – or do both of them get married? But one of them gets married. They, they move out of the city into the suburbs and you know they live happily ever after. And that, that is a good uh, point you make about uh, with Stillman films. I think I, I, when this does come out on um, DVD and Blu-ray, I will watch these movies in that order. Um, but I, I feel in my personal preference to, to with Stillman – I, I can't decide. I, I it goes for me. My favorite is Barcelona, then Metropolitan, and I, I think it would kind of be a, a coin toss between Damsels in Distress and Last Days of Disco, uh, just simply because it is it is the it is the fact that they are just so cartoony, and I I like the kind of groundedness um, Barcelona has, um, which is why I can't really uh, be on board so much with Damsels in Distress and Last Days of Disco because it just gets too big. I, and too cartoony for my taste. Right. And I, I think that there, there is an underlying thing, though, there. I think there's a reason why Barcelona is your favorite and my favorite, which is uh, it's the only one of his movies that's really not an ensemble. Um, it's it's just really – there are lots of characters, but the focus is on the Taylor Nichols and Chris Eichmann characters. And their dynamic is so fascinating, like the way they're – they're they're just kind of these polar opposite dudes, um, you know. One's really prudish, the other one's kind of a wild card. You know, one's this you know kind of loose cannon military guy. The other one's this very stuffy um, uh, businessman. You know, and they're both you know fish out of water in this country that is hating on America. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's such a great context for uh his characters because like in all these other movies they're kind of in their element but it, but that one is barcelona is just fascinating because they're out of their element and because it's it's uh they're strangers in a strange land and yeah and also those two characters are also cousins and they're, they they don't have any sibling siblings of their own and they don't have any cousins of their own it's just those two and so i like that the relationship that they touch upon in um, Barcelona, that it is just those two, and they called it like something like Blood Brothers or something, just because they don't have siblings and they don't have any other cousins. Yeah, and, and actually, Blood, Blood Brothers in, until he sank his kayak a few yeah. hours later. <laughs> yeah, and even to the effect that they, you know, one one guy's name is Ted and the other guy's name is Fred. You know, and so even right there, their names kind of even match in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he's not subtle with the names. Like all all the protagonists and damsel are named after flowers. Yeah. There's Violet, Lily, Rose, Heather. He's not subtle. No, he, he's, he's like he's like Vincent Gallo that way. <laughs> That's the only way he's like Vincent Gallo. But well, and, and um, Chloe except for the Chloe Savini yeah, thing. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> 
but um, I didn't I didn't see the outtakes from last days. I don't know what went on. But uh, and also um, one other thing I want I guess one of the last things we'll talk about is are the worlds of Whitstillman are always at the end of an era type of uh, in, in these worlds. I mean, obviously in last days of disco, it is the last days of disco disco actually ends <laughs> at the end of that movie. Um, in damsels in distress, it's, it's the end of uh, the Roman uh, dorm room college life that they set for each. Cause there's this shift between um, this, um, what they would consider elitist dorm life of, of the Roman fraternities as opposed to everyone else. So there's the end of that. And, um, Barcelona, it's the last days of um, kind of the cold of, of the Cold War in Spain, and how that affect how people affect, oh, view Americans. And in Metropolitan, it's the end of the debutante season uh, f- for the year. And so, I really like how these characters transition from the end of an era into the, this new era, and how they want to keep uh, keep hold of their old ideals, but they're in this ever changing landscape. And I just find that so interesting with his films. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that that's uh, definitely a pattern. I mean, like, like we, like we've been talking about, like all these films, even though they, they can be, they, they have been skewing a little broader um, as they've gone on. Like, they are of a piece, um, and uh, and and are, and are most interchangeable. But uh, it's interesting. Like, uh, there, there has been a, like a thirteen, fourteen year gap, and in that time. I know that he has, you know, he hasn't just been laying low. He has been working on projects um, and all of them sounded like departures. Like I know he was going to do one that was like a satire involving aliens. He was going to do one that was about the history of ska music. Uh, He had one called Red Azalea, which was like a big historical drama. Um, I actually got to meet him once in college uh, when he was promoting The Last Days novelization, and he told me he had wanted to do a Revolutionary War swashbuckler, uh, but he was just so disgusted by the Patriot that he gave up on it. <laughs> um, but yeah, but like, like I think someone in an interview actually brought up the fact that like, hey, did you realize that Terrence Malick has made three movies since the last one you did? <laughs> <laughs> And that guy doesn't make any movies. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm, ultimately, I'm really glad that we have Damsels in Distress in the world, that we have um, a new Whit Stillman film. And the fact that we see – that I completely see Greta Gerwig in a different way because of this movie. Uh, and it makes me fall in love with her even more. And I think overall, I do highly recommend checking out Damsels in Distress, whether you are – um, whether you're familiar with, with the work of Wood Stillman or if not, it, it's definitely a movie worth watching. I agree with everything Rudy just said. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and again, yeah, just, yeah, go, you know, seek those movies out, seek out Barcelona, seek out Metropolitan. Um, but uh, yeah, like, I mean, I, I can't see anybody coming out of damsels in distress with anything other than a smile on their face. Oh, uh, you should have been to the, the critic screening I was at. A couple <laughs> <years ago. laughs> um, like, no, they, they don't have souls. They don't. <laughs> well, we're, uh, this one film critic who's like, it's like, we waited 13 years for that. <laughs> and I'm all like, read a book, please read yeah. a book. Where, where are the school bullies when you need them? <laughs> like really? Um, but, uh, 
But yeah, like uh, in any any reasonable human being with a soul will walk out with a smile on their face. Or, there, there's, there's my challenge. With their reaction, like all those characters are so irritating and grating. They're so horrible. I'm like, I think they're supposed to be horrible, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, like there's like, but like you you can say that about like any filmmaker who has care, you know, characters who who have like a specific voicey, you know. Uh, thing going on. I mean, it's like, and anytime it's 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 beyond just like grounded, you know, realism. Like people kind of, you know, some people just start twitching. And you know, I always go back to that great uh, Stanley Kubrick quote where he said, you know, reality is good, interesting is better. Yes. And on that note, uh, let's wrap up this episode of Movie Night. Where can we find you online, Max Avery? Uh, my Twitter handle is at M-A-X-E-V-R-Y, and you can find me daily at nextmovie.com. It's an MTV site. It's pretty awesome. I also occasionally write for Coming Soon and for blackfilm.com. And you can follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Rudy underscore Obias. That's R-U-D-I-E underscore O-B-I-A-S. Shakya.com, Autorcast.com, and everything that is Rudy at RudyOBias.com. If I do my job correctly, you will be transitioning into uh, listening to a conversation between Christy Puchko of uh, CinemaBlend.com and our discussion of Titanic 3D and American Reunion. So here's that transition I was talking about. Shakya presents Movie Night. I'm your host. My name is Rudy Obias, and joining me is a writer for CinemaBlend.com, CriticalMob.com, and TheFilmStage.com, Christy Puchko. Thank you so much for joining me here on Movie Night. Thanks for having me. So we're going to be discussing uh, two movies in this episode coming out this weekend. The first movie, uh, it's actually, this movie came out 15 years ago, but there is a 3D conversion of it, and... uh, it's probably it's the second biggest movie of all time. James Cameron's uh, Titanic, which won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1997 and won practically every award it was nominated for that year. Um, so, Christy, what are your thoughts on on James Cameron's Titanic overall? And I guess, do you feel the need for a 3D uh, conversion? You you write an article for you wrote an article for CinemaBlend.com. Uh, 3D or not to 3D, uh, where you talk about Titanic's uh, 3D-ness. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts on this film and the 3D conversion? Well, um, I was excited to see it uh, just because I was kind of... It, it had been a long time since I had seen it on the big screen. I, like most other people, if it's on TV, it's like Independence Day. It's one of those movies that you will just sit down and watch again. Or for Forrest Gump is another one for me. It's just such it's such enveloping storytelling that I'm there. But um, I was curious to see, like, especially with James Cameron being such a, a vocal proponent of 3D, what he would be able to do with that movie. And I kept thinking in my head, like, oh, I bet those action scenes at the end are just going to be amazing and, like, coming at you. And and it's just the reality of it is that, that with it being a movie shot in 2D, you just can't make those kind of things. I mean, they they broke a lot of ground 
on how to actually sculpt things and give it more dimension. And there is a lot more dimension in the film. But I think if audiences are going and expecting like the waves to come at them, that's not really what this conversion does. Yeah. Oh, James Cameron, actually, I think probably since 2009 was, was spending this much time converting Titanic that I don't think it was like a flash in the pan type of thing. Well, no, no. 3d is big. Let's make Titanic into 3d and, and make some more money out of it. I'm sure that was an intention to make more money from Titanic, but I don't think it was uh, like, just let's throw 3d on it. Um, I don't think the 3d is amazing in this. I don't think it's necessary at all. I think a big reason why I feel people should see this in theaters is to see it in theaters, period. Yeah. Just to see it on the big screen. I have never seen Titanic on the big screen. Oh, really? Sh- yeah, shockingly, I've never seen Titanic in 3D. I've seen it many, many times. It's actually one of my favorite movies, but I've never seen it on the big screen. And I am absolutely happy that I did. Um, this movie needs to be seen uh, in a movie theater with a group of people yeah. on the big screen. And it- it's worth the price of admission to see it, but... I don't feel that 3D is absolutely necessary, and I don't think that they're going to actually have 2D screenings of this. But since this is probably the only way to see it on the big screen, I would say take that big risk and see it in 3D. I mean, it is an extraordinary movie to watch, and it's it's one of those movies made for a theater. And like as you and I talked uh, after we saw it, um, the 3D it does add a dimension. I particularly thought the scenes at the beginning were were going underwater to the ruins of Titanic. I thought in 3D that was really amazing because it did make me feel like I was there, um, which was really exciting. Yeah. Um, but for most of it, you know, most so much of the movie is close ups of Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet that the 3D just doesn't it's too subtle to really have an impact in those moments and then the scenes at the end the 3d use it's it is it is noticeable but it doesn't really those scenes are so powerful anyway you don't really need the 3d for them to be impactful yeah like there i think there's in the last hour when the ship is going down there's just so much emotion and action in those scenes already that it's already at a high level and I, i don't think the 3d is an overkill but i don't feel it's it's necessary um again seeing this for on the big screen for the first time my mind was just blown by the last hour of this movie i mean i don't think people give titanic a lot of credit it seems like this is a far people think it's one of the worst movies ever made or it's it's far overrated i i don't buy into that at all i mean i will grant you that it's it is cheesy but i think it's intentionally supposed to be cheesy i don't think james cameron is is going at this at an angle of 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 um high art or high cinema i think he really wants to make it accessible for a general audience and that's what the story is but what he does create in in the filmmaking is at a high level Uh, to have the whole last hour of this movie and this is a three hour long movie but it goes by really quickly surprisingly Mm -hmm. um the last hour of this movie is the ship going down but you you never feel like it's getting bogged down in any way that it's brilliantly paced um while watching it this um this past week in preparation for this episode i I noticed that uh it played like aliens (laughs) like it plays like a big action movie like aliens or or, or Avatar or any James Cameron film that it still has that actionness to it, mm-hmm. which is why I feel, why are people so down on this movie? I think it's because, um, and I don't, I don't think it's exactly fair, but I feel like, you know, there is so much that's really incredible in this. And there's so much really beautiful storytelling, particularly the vignettes when the boat actually begins to sink of, of people uh, kind of resigning themselves to the fate of I'm going to die at sea. 
Um, and those moments are really powerful. But I think what gets it this uh, reputation is that it's, I don't think that, that he made, uh, he intended to make a cheesy love story, but I feel like his love story is so earnest that especially in an age now where I think cynicism is considered cool and chic and sophisticated, it just seems really goofy. But I, it's not goofy, it's, it's honest. I mean, like, you know, as you pointed out when we were watching it, she's 17 and he's presumably about her age. And like, this is the kind of romance you have as a teenager or that you at least aspire to have yeah. where you meet this person and they have these arguments that are so kind of full of attitude and goofy and bravado. And, but that makes sense. And then they, you know, they have this exciting adventure on the biggest ship ever. I mean, it's such grandiose. It's, it's, it's romance on a grandiose scale that comes from a very honest place. And I think the vulnerability of that is what gets made fun of and what's been ridiculed. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't keep that in mind that they are supposed to be teenagers or at least, you know, maybe in their early 20s. But it, it's definitely their first love. Like, I think from, from both aspects of, of, of Jack and Rose, this is the first time that they're experiencing love for the first time. And you definitely get an impression that this is Rose's first time that she, you know, she loses her virginity in this movie. This is the first time that she's ever been with a man, first time having sex. And, you know, she's being rebellious against her mother and, and against to her. To be courted, it suggests, too, because she's engaged at the start of the movie to Billy Zane's character. But it's never really implied that they had a courtship. It's more, it's, I mean, I don't want to say arranged marriage, but it's, it's a society marriage. Yeah. It was basically like her mother was like, this guy will be a good match for you financially go yeah and of course it's it's always gonna you know everyone's first love has have that kind of you know rose covered glass uh rose colored glass while watching it you know they're always going to be bright and and somewhat cheesy and i that's what i like about this movie that so many people could relate to it in that way that i feel people comparing it to oh it's like twilight and the romance no the romance here is is far more believable. Well, and also comparing it to Twilight, I mean, the thing that always bugs me about Twilight um, is the fact that it's effectively a movie where a girl sits around and has men compete over her. Which I get the fantasy aspect of that, but as an as as a woman seeing movies, that doesn't interest me. I like to see women be characters and not pedestals. But Rose, I mean, Rose gets in there. You oh, know, yeah. there are moments where he saves her, like memorably, he pulls her back from the brink of the ship and all that. But, like, there's this scene where she has to go out on her own where the halls are flooding and find a way to unlock him from a pipe. And she, like, gets an axe. And she uses the axe, like, one-handed, bandies her way down a hallway. Like, that's insane. And that's, like, to me, when you're, like, it's like aliens. Like, that was the first scene that popped in mind. I was like, it is like aliens. Yeah. I mean, there's fluttering lights. There's hallways that are becoming just smaller and more dangerous by the moment. And... And, you know, Rose, especially, she's a society girl who's a teenager. She really proves to be a very strong and interesting character. Like, she starts, I mean, he calls her a brat, and she absolutely is. But there's so much more to her that, that, that uh, there's so much more to her than that that we see as the movie goes on. Yeah, she, she's, yeah, she is really kick-ass. I mean, one like, those scenes in the hallways, I automatically thought of aliens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you hear these creaking sounds of water coming in, and that could easily be the alien behind you or something. And the way James Cameron shoots it, the electricity goes out, and now it's dark. It's so scary down there. Um, and they really allow her moments to be afraid, which I, I I was starting to think, like, this is why this movie is so long. But they're really, like, he, he does put a really determined interest 
on the characters' responses to what's happening, which I think is another reason this movie affects people so much. I mean, you know, people can get on it for being so long or whatever, but the fact that we get those moments of not just what's happened, but the moment to actually register how the character is taking in what's happened. And also, uh, I, this is the last thing we'll, we'll talk about it, then we'll move on to the to the next movie. But Billy Zane is in this movie, and he Thanks. is actually really amazing in this movie. Fantastic. As this uh, uh, very snobby, rich person villain. I mean, he <laughs> every line he says is just pure gold. Like, he's just so smug in his ways that I can't help but just smile and chuckle. Like, look at Billy Zane. Yeah, and that was the fun thing about the screening we went to is that people were, and I, and that's another thing that's great about revival uh, cinema in general is that when you go to see a movie with people that are going to see a movie that came out ages ago and you can easily rent, the people in that theater really want to see that movie, and they're going to be so on board for that ride that it's going to be a fantastic experience. And I, I thought it was fun because you and I were both very excited about Billy Zane because he is just. It's it's such a campy performance, but it also totally works. Like he is just he is just the ultimate bad guy in that movie. He's a millionaire who has everything, yet he's incredibly cruel. And when he pulls out a gun, I lost my mind. I was like, I had forgotten that happened, and I was so excited. Oh, and, and, thinking around us. Let's add some gunplay. And James Cameron does it in slow motion. I'm like, yes, you know what this is all about. To me, it's like um, at the end of the movie Jaws, which is one of my favorites, no doubt. Uh, there there's when they were making it peter uh peter benchley who wrote the book found out that they were going to blow up jaws at the end which is not how the book goes and he told steven spielberg that is ridiculous like you can't do that that doesn't make any sense and um i think on mythbusters they proved it doesn't make any sense but uh his response steven spielberg's response was the audience is going to be so with me it doesn't matter and that's kind of how i felt when they pulled out the gun i was like i don't care that that's absurd i am totally on board with this ride and i like i i want him to pull out that gun i want him to go for it because it just pumps it up another level oh my god his he and he he acts with every pore of his body he does some serious (laughs) eyebrow acting which you know i'm a fan of (laughs) he Uh, does great eyebrow acting in this it really is He's uh, really, really wonderful. I, I joked on Facebook that I loved his zaniness. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, wordplay. Um, but yeah, I, I, he's so fun to watch. And that's kind of the thing. Like Rose and Jack, I feel like Billy Zane read the script and was like, oh, okay, so I'm the, I'm the horrible character in this. Okay. And so he like looked at it and was like, okay, these two are going to be loved and whatever. I need to do something to get my notice. <laughs> I'm just going to be completely wicked. And yeah, and it, it makes him so much fun to watch. And I think... It's like, because he's so much fun to watch, I I don't want him to die at the end, which I probably should. He does tons of terrible stuff. But, like, he picks up, and if, if, uh, you know, those who've seen it before, which I don't know why you would listen to this if you hadn't, uh, he he manages to get onto a boat by picking up a random screaming steerage child and being like, oh, I'm all she has in the world. (laughs) And then he gets on a boat. But, like, in my head, I'm like, I want to think he sends her to junior college and everything turns out okay. Like, I just want to give him that chance at redemption because he's so fun to watch. <laughs> uh, the, the next movie that we're going to be talking about that um, also comes out, well, Titanic came out on, on Wednesday. Uh, we're recording this on a Thursday. That uh, This movie comes out uh, Friday is uh, American Reunion, uh, ostensibly the eighth film in the American Pie series, but actually the, the fourth uh, that actually followed this group of, of kids. Um, and this movie is one part uh, high school reunion, uh, another part uh, teen sex comedy with with uh, a cast that are definitely not in their teens anymore. Um, 
Christy, what are your thoughts on, I guess, American Pie overall, at least the first three movies that actually have to deal with the cast, and uh, American Reunion? Can we go back to uh, this formula? Does this – does American Reunion pack that same punch as um, the first American Pie film? Hmm. Well, I think that we can go back because I feel like what was great about American Pie was that it was a mix of earnest and and very heartfelt and warm emotion with raunchy comedy. And I think that most of the comedies, the R-rated comedies that have come out and done incredibly well have that. I mean, even The Hangover, like The Hangover is absurd as hell, but there are some genuinely touching and sweet moments in that. And I think that blend works really well. Um, I don't think American Reunion pays off that well. And it bums me out, honestly. I wrote a review for the film stage where uh, I talk about it. But, um, you know, I was nervous about seeing American Reunion because I loved American Pie when I was a teenager and really connected to it, even though there are so few characters in that for, uh, like, I I love Jessica, who is Natasha Lyonne's character, because she was the the smug, smirky girl that was like, listen, and, like, I loved her. Um, And she gets a moment in this movie. But, like, I really connected to the early ones. The second one I watched and thought was funny but was bummed out because it was... I remember just thinking it was amping up the sex and the crudeness without really doing anything interesting. Uh, But I haven't seen that one since it came out. And then I did see American Wedding but did not remember until my husband was like, no, we saw that. So uh, I've apparently seen that. (laughs) Um, But... You know, I was really excited to go back again because I do hold such fond memories of the movie and of these characters and of that kind of sense of the 90s that they captured so well. Um, And I was curious to see it come back. And in some ways, the movie is really the movie is very funny. And in some ways does uh, it it works really well as a comedy. It's just not a good movie is my problem. And it bums me out because I think I think American Pie is a good movie. Yeah, I, I'm actually a, a big fan of American Pie and American Pie 2 and American Wedding, um, although I haven't seen them since they came out. I remember loving the hell out of those movies when, when they did come out about 13, 12, 10 years ago. Um, and, and I was actually really excited for American Reunion just to see this cast together again and this idea of, uh, of, of a reunion. And it seems like the natural progression of you know graduating from high school, going to college, getting married, and then having a reunion, not seeing these people um, – in 13 years and then getting back together and seeing what everyone's up to and ultimately finding out that, you know, we were friends back then and we could still be friends right now. And that movie definitely has that. Uh, this movie definitely has that in spades. Um, it does work as a comedy. This movie does have a lot of laugh out loud moments, a lot of raunchy uh, humor, a lot of sex humor as well. But I feel that this movie, um, it's 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 directed towards a certain demographic people who are in their late 20s early 30s people who were in high school when american pie first came out mm-hmm. and those movies work so well for people who were in high school but it seems the the people who saw these saw the first movie in high school they're now 10 years older or 13 years older they uh and it seems like this movie should have grown up with them and it feels like it hasn't and i think that's it, for me, it seemed like a missed opportunity to actually say something about about growing up, about getting back together uh, with people you went to high school with. And I feel it wanted to do that, but really only on a very surface level. Uh, 
this movie does feel like it is a high school reunion. Like you are excited for the possibility of, of meeting these people that you went to high school with again. And, but ultimately when you get inside of it, it's not really a good idea and you just want it all to end. And when it it does end, uh, you're kind of happy that you went, but at the same time, you're happy to go on with your life, (laughs) you know, that this was a good uh, experience, but it's not going to be an experience that defines me at all. Um, And that's how uh, American Reunion played for me. I I feel um, we haven't seen a lot of these actors in a very long time. And I think American Reunion really highlights why we haven't seen Tara Reid <laughs> in a very long time, why we haven't seen uh, Mina Savari in a very long time. Uh, they're, they're, they're not very good actors. <laughs> they don't have that same screen presence uh, as someone like uh, Allison Hannigan or, or even Jason Biggs or even uh, Sean William Scott. Uh, Chrissy, do you see it? this movie is kind of an opportunity for these actors to kind of have a comeback in some way, to be back in the popular culture zeitgeist. Do you, do you think that any of these actors outside of the actors that I mentioned, do you think that they'll have, they'll have it like a second, uh, a second uh, showing or something that they'll, they'll have a comeback in a way. I think that the actors that will do well off this movie are the actors that would do well without this movie. Um, it's because like Alison Hannigan was, is underused. I, I want to point that out to how I met your mother fans. She, she really doesn't have a lot to do in this movie. And that's a shame because she's shown time and time again, that she's hilarious. Um, but they, they stick her in this plot line with uh, Jason Biggs, who is just, he is not a leading man anymore. He was just, I don't know. He was so uninteresting to me and they're, they're not helped. The plot is basically for them uh, that they haven't had a good sex life since their two year olds been born. Which is, I can understand that being frustrating, but there's no actual stakes introduced. Like, they're both frustrated, but there's never any mention of, like, you know, this could mean divorce or they're, like, you know, they try to introduce this threat that he might cheat on her. But the, the threat they introduce is so radical that there's no way you're going to believe he's he's going to bite. And it's basically that, like, he comes home and sees this girl rot- trotting around in teeny tiny shorts and a tank top. And he's glare like he's staring at her and ogling her, and then she's like, "Oh my God, Jim, you used to babysit me!" And she is a high schooler who turns eighteen the next day, so I guess we're not supposed to be skeeved out because she'll be legal or whatever. But like, she keeps coming on to him very, very desperately and very, very in your face in a way that made me very uncomfortable, honestly, as an audience member. And it leads to a sequence that I just thought was not funny and was just really creepy. Um, and that was a bummer, but I mean, like, there's no actual stakes to their relationship because you never think he's actually going to sleep with this girl and ruin his relationship with Allison Hannigan. So their plot has nowhere to go. Um, but you know, the actors who are great in it, which is, uh, Sean William Scott, who plays Stifler is hysterical in every scene. Um, I mentioned in my review that, uh, he's funny. He steals scenes. He's not in. There's a scene where two of the characters, uh, Oz and Heather, so Chris Klein and Mina Suvari, are talking about, you know, when they used to date. And in the background, there's a senior photo of Stifler with his, like, hand on his chin, or his, his face, yeah, his, like, fist under his chin. And it's so funny and goofy that I was laughing at that and not listening to their scene at all. Yeah, I think that that was that was definitely a comic beat of the movie. And, and it's the thing with uh, Sean William Scott, who was the only one from the uh, him and Allison Hannigan um, were the only two from this the main cast that actually made it off to another career. And I think it's interesting with William um, Sean William Scott is that we we've seen him evolve as an actor, mm-hmm. um, not to just do Stifler. Um, 
he did Stifler 13 years ago, and he's really good at doing that. But we've seen him do other things, and we've yeah. seen him be good in other things. But I find it so interesting that he he's, he's such a good actor that he can come back to Stifler. And still, and still do something new with it. Yeah, like, still I still enjoyed watching Stifler. And, I mean, they keep calling him a dick, but he's one of the more interesting characters. And uh, and rightfully so that Sean William Scott is kind of the centerpiece of this movie because he is the biggest star and he is the biggest talent. He definitely has that screen presence. But I, I just find it interesting that he can go back to that and still – it still feels like, oh, this is Stifler, but this 13 years older. Whereas everyone else, they just feel like, eh – you know, it's very much remember this guy. It's like yeah. they drag them out of whatever they were doing. And it's just a shame. I do wonder the more I think about it, because the more I thought about it, it was like, why are there? There are just so many subplots. Like every character has a subplot and some of them aren't interesting. Some of them are repetitive. It's just you don't need all this. Um, and I wondered if it was that the producers or something had such a devotion to these kids that they had made stars, you know, 13 years ago that they were like, we're going to give them another shot. And um, they don't deserve another shot. That sounds horrible. I know that. But people have different talents. Some of these people are just not great actors. Well, I think but, I think out of all of these, maybe perhaps Chris Klein could have a, a second coming in his career. He is very funny uh, in this. He is very funny in this movie, and he definitely has that screen presence and chiseled good looks that people look that people look for in in actors, um, movie stars, namely. And I think that he has a possibility to have a, another career past this because. You know he is he is that funny and that good in this movie. But... He has a kind of um, a kind of Nick Cage quality where he's just like I'm going to go for it. It's yeah. his performances are always slightly deranged, but I enjoy that about them. But I don't think like Thomas Ian Nichols is going to have a, a, no. anything after this. Tara Reid or, or Mina Savari or um, even <laughs> Eddie K. Thomas. Uh, but uh, one of the big moments in this movie for me was just small little cameo from John Cho, who played uh, Milf Guy Number Two in in um, the American Pie movies. He's the probably the biggest star out of this whole cast. He arguably. walks away with this movie, and he he, wa- he had my favorite moment. I won't give it away because it's I don't. But he had my favorite moment. Yes, uh, I mean at the moment we see him on screen, we we know that oh this guy is going to give us good laughs, and he does. He he delivers on every element of the movie, and. I think it's kind of a shame that just they didn't realize this 13 years ago and yeah. put him into the the main cast of this movie. Why couldn't he have been Kevin? <laughs> Why? Oh. Uh, maybe because he's Asian. Maybe I, that's what we I weren't as progressive then. But what's funny about it is that I like that he I, he reprises the role of, of Milf Guy Number Two, and they never give him a name. Um, so. They actually call him Milf. They're like, "Hey, Milf Guy." Like, that's how they address him. And I, I love that because, one, it is a callback to the first movie. But also, it's true to high school. It's like when you, you know, like when I go to my hometown, sometimes I run into people. And I'm not I'm not good at that. Um, that's much more like my mom and my sister are great at being like, you know, so-and-so. She's the third cousin. Da, 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 and they know all that. Um, I will run into people and flat out not recognize them. And I'm doing that. Like, it's so good to see you. <laughs> And I liked that they had that moment where, like, especially because, like, you know, outside of the movie, he is by far one of the most successful people involved with the series. And, uh, you know, the idea that in this world he's still just MILF guy is really funny. And and he gets an, he gets his own character arc, but it's an example where it works really well. It's very funny. And, yeah, he, I mean, like, he's on a par with, like, Eugene Levy and Jennifer Coolidge are back. And I feel like he's on a par with them. He really knows how to do a little with a lot or do a lot with a little. Definitely. And uh, Eugene Levy is really good in this. I mean, he was definitely enjoyable and he he gets the sense of humor and 
he he's like the last gag in this movie is probably one of the funniest things yeah. in this movie, in my opinion, that involved Jennifer Coolidge and Eugene Levy in a movie theater, uh, watching a movie, and there's a tub of popcorn, which is the funniest thing. They're I very feel good. In this movie. Um, and I don't feel like I don't feel that there wasn't enough of them. I thought there was a perfect amount of of those two actors and those two characters to keep going with the movie. I mean, obviously, you're not going to highlight them that much because no, totally. But there's there's a moment where uh, there's like two or three, like literally minutes, where Stifler and Jim's dad share screen time. Yeah, and they were so much fun. I just wanted that to be the movie. Like they they're they're shared chemistry and the idea of like Stifler and Jim's dad becoming friends was so fun for me that I just kind of was like, why don't we have more of this? I don't care about Oz and Kevin and. You know, it was just, there was way too much exposition and too little silliness. And it's, it's a strange thing with Alison Hannigan uh, in this movie because she actually got paid uh, the most, or not the most, or definitely one of the most uh, paid in this movie. And she, I agree with you, she was definitely underutilized. Uh, uh, and someone like Jason Beggs, who got paid the most, uh, him and William, uh, Sean William Scott, to be in this movie, they really do nothing with, with his character overall. And I, I mean, he doesn't help. He's just not developed. I mean, and like, after American Pie, I wanted to be on his side. I saw Saving Silverman in theaters. <laughs> I'm with you, Jason Biggs, but like, this was not, it just wasn't, I mean, like, that was the thing. He just played Jim and there was nothing new to it. Where like, Stifler, like, Sean William Scott comes back as Stifler and brings Stifler 13 years later. Jim is just Jim, chubbier. Uh, I saw Boys and Girls in theaters. Uh, I'm aware of Jason Biggs. <laughs> oh, my God. I uh, remember that one. Boys I did not see that in theaters. I have seen it. Uh, it makes you wonder what happened to Claire Filani and Freddie Prinze Jr. Claire Filani burned bridges. And it, it feels like if, if this movie does well this weekend, I would love to see a Can't Hardly Wait reunion. <gasps> I, I would love to see that. Oh, my God. I would. I would totally love that. That, uh... I want that and Empire Records. An Empire, anything with Ethan Embry. <laughs> yeah, let's just give Ethan Embry a hundred new movies. Um, oh, man. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, American Pie really hit that sweet spot uh, where it was it was raunchy and goofy, but it really did capture, I think, the teenage fascination but uncertainty about sex. Yeah. Definitely. And I think that a lot of movies try to do that, but most fail. And, and American Pie was great about that. But I don't think that the filmmakers had as much to say with American Reunion. And I think that's the problem. It's mostly just like, I, it's it's rehashed high school stories, you know? Like, what if I stayed with my first girlfriend? My wife and I aren't having sex very much. I don't like my job. Like, it, these stories in and of themselves are not that interesting. You need to do something, in, you have to do something inventive to make them fun. And they there's just not enough effort to do that. Though I do, I do like, like Chris Klein's plot is lame, but I really did think he had some really wonderful moments. Um, the the gag where he dances, I thought was very funny. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's just. It's a missed opportunity. Yeah. Um. Let, let's wrap up this episode of Movie Night. So, uh, Chrissy, are you recommending Titanic 3D and, and or uh, American Reunion this weekend? If you could get friends to go see either with you, I think they're both worth it. Um, you know, Titanic 3D is very much a crowd movie. Uh, I think, you know, you and I experienced that where the crowd we saw it with, I mean, you described it like Twilight. Like they were like cheering when names came up. It was a lot of fun. It was totally worth it. So whether or not you have an interest in the 3D, it's still a great viewing experience. Yeah, they were, they were cheering at the Paramount logo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
I think it's because they did that was the first thing you actually saw in 3D. We, you know, we all had and we all had our special Titanic 3D glasses on, which are gold plated, is what uh, I'm telling people. Um, limited edition. <laughs> limited edition, yeah. And uh, but as for American Reunion, I don't know. I just feel like it's not worth it's not worth the ticket price. But like, if you and some friends want to go reminisce and then go see a movie that reminds you of a movie you loved when you were younger, there's it's it's all right. It's okay. Yeah. I, it's a good comedy. It's not a great movie. I feel like if you keep that in mind, you're still interested, then you'll have a good time. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend seeing Titanic on the big screen. That like that's definitely an experience that is is not to be missed. Uh, with American Reunion, you know, if, see a matinee, I guess, yep. of it. But you know, you're probably at work <laughs> during the day, <laughs> so uh, I go guess, to a matinee and then get a beer. Yeah, I, I would say that. Um, where can we find you online, Christy Puchko? Where can we find you on the internet? Uh, I write for Critical Mob, Cinema Blend, The Film Stage. And uh, at Twitter, I'm at Christy Puchko. That's K-R-I-S-T-Y-P-U-C-H-K-O. And I tweet a bunch of my stuff there. Uh, and listeners, I highly recommend checking out Cinema Blend and Critical Mob and The Film Stage. Uh, wonderful, wonderful outlets. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, twitter.com slash Rudy underscore Obias. That's R-U-D-I-E underscore O-B-I-A-S. Shakya.com, autorcast.com, and everything that is Rudy at RudyObias.com. On the next episode of Shakya Presents Movie Night, we're going to be discussing The Cabin in the Woods, uh, the new horror film from the writer of uh, Cloverfield, Drew, uh, Drew Goddard, and also from Joss Whedon, who's a writer of, of The Cabin in the Woods. I don't need to mention what other things Joss Whedon does. Everything you love. You know what you Yeah. Uh, so closing out this episode of Movie Night, thank you so much for listening to our show. Goodbye. Can we forget about the